This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more RAND analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Okay, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jamie Fiegelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations at the RAND Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you today to this RAND briefing titled Getting TS with China in Cyberspace. Since the founding of the People's Republic of China in 1949, the U.S.-China relationship has been characterized by conflict, confrontation, and strategic mistrust. Unfortunately, relations in cyberspace are just as strained as relations in the physical world as the hacks of the Office of the Personnel Management, Anthem, and United Airlines have shown. Indeed, of all these areas where the relationship between the two sides is troubled, cyberspace has been one of the most contentious. Today, uh, Scott and Martin will discuss if it's possible for the United States and China to come to an understanding on norms and rules in cyberspace through formal negotiations. You'll hear about the differing perspectives and interests of the U.S. and China in cyberspace and how these different perspectives affect the prospects for managing the two sides' bilateral relationship. We'll talk a little bit about how the U.S. and China approach negotiations and deterrence and finally discuss some feasible paths to getting to meaningful and lasting agreements over norms in cyberspace. Uh, leading today's discussion, we have two of RAND's foremost experts on China and cyber. First, on my right, Scott Harold is the Associate Director of the Center for Asia-Pacific Policy at the RAND Corporation. He specializes in Chinese foreign policy, East Asian security, and international affairs. Prior to joining RAND in August of 2008, Scott worked at the Brookings Institution's John L. Thornton China Center. In addition to his work at RAND, Scott is an Adjunct Associate Professor of Security Studies at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Next, on my left, is Martin Lebicki. He's a senior management scientist at the RAND Corporation, a professor at the Party RAND Graduate School, and a distinguished visiting professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. His most recent research has involved net assessments of Russia and China in cyberspace, modeling cybersecurity decisions, cyber war strategy, demographic change, and organizing the U.S. Air Force for cyber war, and using biometrics for our identity management. Prior to joining RAND, Lebicki spent 12 years at the National Defense University, three years on the Navy staff as a program sponsor for industrial preparedness, and three years as a policy analyst for the U.S. General Accounting Office's Energy and Minerals Division. Uh, so with the introductory comments out of the way, I'm very pleased to turn it over to Scott and Martin to lead today's discussion. So I'm going to be talking today about some work that uh, my colleague, Dr. Lebicki, and I performed in 2014 and 2015. Uh, that resulted in a publication earlier this year. It's called Getting to Yes with China in Cyberspace. And I just want to say thank you to all of you uh, who came out today, and I look forward to your questions, and also thank you to all of the media for uh, showing up. I'm going to talk about three issues today. Uh, the first is what are some of the issues that define this policy space, including what are some of the issues that divide the United States and China in their views on cyberspace? Second, the question that we were really most interested in is whether or not the two sides can find common ground on cyberspace, despite these differences. And third, we wanted to look at whether or not negotiations was the right way to get to finding common ground. In other words, can we work out a way to live together with each other in cyberspace, even if we don't agree on all things? Just briefly, I wanted to say a little bit about how we did this study. So there's a lot of people writing in English and Chinese on cybersecurity on its role in economic development, on its role in national sovereignty and national security. So we conducted a very extensive literature review of writings in English and in Chinese. Uh, I'm capable of reading Chinese. We also had a Chinese reading 
research assistant. Uh, Martin and I were also able to participate in an informal track two dialogue but that's organized annually between the Center for Strategic and International Studies and the Chinese Institutes of Contemporary International Relations, a think tank based in Beijing, China, uh, that's affiliated with the Ministry of State Security. Uh, and then third, we actually made a separate trip to China uh, and spent some time in Beijing talking with experts uh, from a number of think tanks and academic institutions, from the Cyber Administration of China, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of China. Uh, and so we tried to give you in this research as comprehensive uh, a picture of the different perspectives that experts on this issue have uh, and use that to inform our own research and analysis. So starting out with some background, cyber is clearly a major source of tension in the relationship. There are a number of areas where the United States and China don't agree about various aspects of world order, various claims that China has, various things the United States does. Uh, but this is really an issue that has come onto the scene fairly quickly. Of course, cyber itself is only 15, 20 years old in terms of a really truly networked domain. Uh, but this is an issue that's really risen very quickly up the priorities chart on the bilateral relationship, maybe comparable in some ways to the South China Sea issue. In fact, one expert on Chinese foreign affairs who is based in Beijing said to us, you know, I've been looking at the U.S.-China relationship a long time. I've never seen anything rise this quickly. In fact, in some sense, it's caught a lot of Chinese experts off guard. Of course, there are technical aspects to this. There are legal aspects to this question. And there are very high policy aspects to this question. Um, another thing to say is that cyber is much, much higher on the U.S. agenda than it was on the Chinese agenda. The United States believes that it has suffered dramatic losses of valuable intellectual property from U.S. private sector firms. The Chinese, by contrast, have never talked about losing very much in terms of intellectual property, possibly because that would be seen as an embarrassment to the government, possibly because Chinese firms don't have that much valuable intellectual property to steal, possibly because the United States does not steal foreign commercial entities' intellectual property and pass it off to U.S. sector firms. At any rate, whatever the reason, on the U.S. side, this is a much bigger issue than it was on the Chinese side. And cyber, as a general issue, has multiple angles that can destabilize the relationship. We've already talked a little bit about the economically motivated cyber espionage angle. But of course, cyber is also a military domain in which conflict could occur if the United States and China were ever to go to war. Of course, it also has an element that it doesn't really figure very prominently on the US side, but is very core to the Chinese side. And that is the, the prospect of information coming across the cyber domain that might be seen as undesirable, unfair, or destabilizing to the Chinese Communist Party's hold on power. And so the Chinese side would like to pursue a doctrine of cyber sovereignty, a belief that information that comes across into Chinese network space should be controllable by the Chinese government. And finally, there's the risk, and we saw this very prominently in the hack carried out by North Korea of Sony Pictures Corporation of America, which, because all of North Korea's servers are based in China, technically came from China to the United States, there's a possibility that the US in the future might look out and see some attack on the United States, might be routed through China, even if it's not being originated by the Chinese government. And we might say, we're being attacked by China, we would want to know, how do we determine, is this actually an attack that's being designed or originated by an action of the Chinese government? Or is some third party capturing a Chinese network, capturing Chinese computers, and using those to execute attack against the United States? So we've got very, very substantial reasons 
to want to manage this issue and have open channels of communication on this issue. Of course, if an attack were to occur on the United States in cyberspace, irrespective of what the origin of that attack is, the Chinese side has not yet determined that it believes that responding to a cyber attack is legitimate. In fact, the Chinese who we talked to often said it's, it's not helpful to talk about responding to an attack in cyberspace. The first response should always be to negotiate. Um, and in fact, the Chinese and the Russians are very strong, strongly believe that you should try to constrain U.S. freedom of action to respond to a cyber attack. This is difficult because, of course, the Chinese and the Russians don't accept the standard rules that U.S., most European states, and many of our allies in the Asia-Pacific have agreed to. The Talon Manual, uh, which tries to uh, explain how uh, the laws of armed conflict could be applied in cyberspace, or the Budapest Convention for governing cybercrime and suppressing cybercrime. Uh, and by contrast, the United States does not accept China and Russia's proposed set of norms for cyberspace. That's the International Code of Conduct for Information Security that was proposed by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that's a set of rules that seeks to embody the notion, again, that countries have the right to control information coming across their networks. From a, from a Western perspective, you might say this is the right to censor, the right to shape people's views through propaganda online. That's what the Chinese and the Russians would like to be able to do to control information that's seen as damaging to their regimes. The United States regards that as an illegitimate approach to information and cybersecurity. And because the Chinese don't recognize a unilateral right to attack, they appear, in our conclusion, to lack a deterrence doctrine for cyberspace. So, for example, when we said, well, isn't it kind of concerning that when the North Koreans attacked Sony, in other words, when North Korea attacked a US-based firm, they routed their attack through servers that were based in China, this could be quite alarming. How, do you, how would you respond if, if someone attacked you, China, routing an attack through US servers? Chinese side, interlock, Chinese side interviewees rarely had an answer for that. Um, they often said, well, it's not OK to be attacked, but you can't respond back. Um, now, some people we talked to did say, well, if an attack went beyond a certain level, if you, if you crashed an airport, uh, control tower's ability to direct traffic, and that led to plane crashes, or if you took down a hospital's electric power source, or if you did something that resulted in major catastrophic deaths, that might respond. That might reach a level where you could respond kinetically or with, with actual physical force. Uh, but by and large, most Chinese who we talked to were quite uncomfortable with that notion. So then we thought, well, let's try to figure out if we could get back to a formal dialogue with China, because the Chinese had severed the dialogue in 2014 that had been set up. The US and China had been talking about this issue. The US had raised it very prominently in summer of 2013. And on the eve of a dialogue between President Xi Jinping and President Obama at Sunnylands in California, Mr. Snowden defected and made very substantial allegations that caused an entire shift in the nature of the discussion about online behavior. That pushed back the establishment of a formal official negotiating channel on cyberspace till late 2014. When that was finally stood up, it met once. And then in the spring of 2014, the United States indicted five PLA officers who had been actively involved in stealing intellectual property from US firms. And the Chinese responded to that with outrage and said, that's it, we're cutting off dialogue. So our study essentially picks up at that point. We looked at this situation and said, we have a very critical set of problems between the two countries in cyberspace. 
but channels of communication that should exist to negotiate this are shut down. How do we get back to formal negotiations? And if we can't get to formal negotiations, what other pathways forwards might there be? So as my colleague and I started this research, uh, we first noticed that the uh, informal track to unofficial dialogue between CSIS and the Chinese Institutes for Contemporary International Relations resumed in 2015. That was taken as a good sign that maybe the Chinese side was beginning to work its way back to exploring how we might talk. Also, when we went over to Beijing, interviewees who we spoke to said, you know what, we want you to quash or, or do away with the indictment against the five PLA officers. It's unacceptable to us that you would indict our military officers. But we're not willing to hold the whole relationship hostage to that, which seemed to us to be an indication that while the Chinese side still had lingering anger over this issue, they were beginning to move past that and to a point where we could find some way to negotiate forward. Um, and many of the people we talked to, looking ahead to the fall of 2015, knew that there was going to be a summit between President Xi and President Obama and said, you know, that would be a good time to find some way to make some statement to show that there is a pathway forward. Well, if there's going to be a pathway forward and the US and China were going to reach some kind of official discussion of what to do in cyberspace with each other, we figured we'd have to figure out what do the Chinese actually want? What are their asks? And is there any overlap between what the US might be willing to give, what the US might ask, and what the Chinese want, and what the Chinese might be willing to give? Would, for example, China be willing to reduce or even end its economically motivated cyber espionage, its hacking of private sector US firms to steal their intellectual property or their business proprietary information? And if so, what would the US have to offer to China in order to get them to do that? Well, Chinese experts weren't very clear generally. First, they would almost always start out by talking about broad principles. China craves respect. China wants to be recognized as a sovereign country whose sovereignty is inviolable. Uh, we want development. We want voice in international institutions that govern cyberspace and set rules and norms. Well, those are fine, uh, but they're not really concrete things the United States could trade. How do we tell you more that we respect you other than coming to you and say we, we respect you enough to talk to you? Uh, when we got down to concrete issues, these were much thinner and generally didn't seem to rise to the level of what we thought a trade space would look like. In other words, if we ask you for something that to us is quite valuable, we, you know, we want you to stop stealing billions of dollars of intellectual property from our private sector firms, we don't expect you to say, okay, you know, and, and in exchange we'll stop accusing you of doing that. That just, you know, you don't, you don't ask a thief, you know, please stop stealing from me. And he says, well, I'll stop stealing from you if you say, okay, don't call me a thief. You know, that would be a good deal. We would take it, but we didn't think it was a serious first step. The Chinese also said generally, you know, we'd like to have a role in uh, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. This is a body that helps set up web addresses. And that's again, goes to the issue of voice and norms and rules making. Um, some, uh, some of the people we talked to did give voice to the concern that, you know, the United States Congress has banned access to U.S. markets from the Chinese firm Huawei over its uh, deeply suspected linkages to the People's Liberation Army and its involvement potentially in espionage and creation of backdoors through internet te uh, for information technology, and so to ZTE, Zhonghua Telecom. So they said, well, you could lift the ban on those. That didn't seem very likely. It seemed like the step the United States Congress was unlikely to approve. And finally, a few people said, well, you could stop funding internet circumvention technology, things that help Chinese citizens get over the great firewall that censors information coming into China. Uh, but of course, 
that is an initiative that the State Department has that's oriented towards freedom worldwide. So once you fund the creation of those technologies, you may be funding those with the aim of helping dissidents in the Middle East, for example. But once the technology exists, Chinese, could, Chinese dissidents could use it. Uh, and so it didn't seem that that was a plausible trade either. Um, our conclusion from all of this was that the Chinese were not yet in a position, while they might be looking for a way forward, they didn't yet seem that they had a very concrete trade list set up of things that they wanted, things that they were going to ask for, and things that they might be willing to give up. So we thought, okay, if we don't hear them proposing it, why don't we start with some proposals and see how they react? First, we said, well, you know, are th is there anything that we agree on as a common enemy? Well, yes, we all find spam annoying. We all think kiddie porn is disgusting and should be suppressed. Uh, when, when Chinese actors are not acting at the behest of the Chinese state, in other words, when they are legitimately Chinese criminals, even under Chinese law, uh, then the Chinese government might agree to suppress them. And similarly, if US criminal networks were attacking China, we might agree to suppress that. And of course, we both don't like terrorists. Terrorists, bad. China agrees on that. US agrees on that. Um, and finally, we propose, you know, it might be possible as a sign of good faith to say, you know, something that you did in the past that we know unambiguously you did, China, and something that we did in the past that you unambiguously believe and that you don't like, without going into specifics, maybe as a sign of good faith, we could both acknowledge something like that. Of course, it would require a very substantial investigation of what that exactly would be and what it would mean, but we could essentially create a blank slate by coming clean on one thing that's relatively symbolic and then move forward from that. Um, now I'll turn the uh, control over to Martin and he'll walk through some additional propositions we put to our interlocutors. So, in an effort to increase the trade space, we started introducing some ideas into the dialogue. The first idea we introduced on the possibility that there might be discomfort with U.S. capabilities in cyberspace is to say, what do you think of an international arrangement, a norm, uh, that would prohibit each party from carrying out cyber attacks on the critical infrastructure of the others? And that, for that, we had a great deal of, of agreement from the folks that we talked to. And then we said, okay, here's the next step. If we're going to not attack each other, it would be useful also not to carry out preparations which could be identified as sort of what in the military is called the intelligence preparation of the battlefield. The um, penetration of other people's systems, as it were, that you couldn't tell the difference between whether they were being penetrated for the purposes of cyber espionage or whether they were penetrated for the purposes of attack. In other words, if you're serious about protecting the critical infrastructure, you have to make them off limits to spying. And we got sort of an agreement from the Chinese, mostly yes, a little bit no. They hadn't quite gone that, down that road for, far enough. And then we said, okay, if we're serious about not having each other spy on critical infrastructure, then it would really help if we could have some sort of agreed on arrangements whereby people each side might be caught spying on one another <clears throat> and as a result of being caught wouldn't be able to give a bland denial, no, that wasn't us, you know, we're totally innocent, etc. In other words, some sort of neutral process, either bilateral, uh, a-lateral entirely, um, that would allow 
people to be held accountable for what they did in cyberspace. And here we got a lot more hesitation from our Chinese interviewees, in large part because, as they pointed out, U.S. capabilities of attribution tend to be much better than Chinese capabilities of attribution. And so my colleague and I left China wondering if, as a way to facilitate some sort of agreement, it would be helpful for the Chinese capabilities for attribution to be improved one way or the other. And so we went home, and we wrote up our report, and then reality happened. And the reality was that we did not anticipate, and none of our Chinese interviewers anticipate, is that in September of 2015, Presidents Xi and Obama agreed, basically, not to carry out economically motivated cyber espionage. But since these things are built up by lawyers, of course, there are a lot more words in their agreement. Okay? They also agreed to cooperate with each other in the investigation of cybercrime. And by doing so, create a basis for continuing consultations, continuing um, interaction between the United States side and the Chinese side. But it was mostly not, it was mostly from the Department of Justice and corresponding Chinese institutions. Okay. And that left us with a big question. Why did this happen? The United States had persuaded China not to carry out economically motivated cyber espionage, and we made the same promise. But as my colleague has pointed out, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that Chinese had carried out economically motivated cyber espionage, and that the United States didn't and had no interest in doing so. So as a result of which is that China gave up something, promised to give up something that they were doing, and the United States didn't have to make any promise to give up something that it was doing, because it wasn't doing this in the first place. And so we have a number of hypotheses. As my colleague points out, it may be years before we find out what really happened, okay? Hypothesis number one, they legitimately believe that such a norm is good for everyone. Number two, they weren't really being serious about this promise and had no serious um, intentions to keep it. Number three is, in fact, they took a look at the kind of pressure that the United States was putting them under, particularly the threat of sanctions, and they decided that this wasn't the fight that they were prepared to have. And number four, which is closely related, was that if it took something from the Chinese leadership in order to mollify U.S. concerns, the Chinese would be better off conceding on economically motivated cyber espionage and not, for instance, conceding on claims in the South China Sea. Let's take a little closer look at this, okay? Did China, in fact, follow through? There were reports that have been confirmed that shortly after the agreement, China arrested hackers that they said were responsible for carrying out the intrusions in the Office of Personnel Management. China claimed that they were criminal hackers. Okay, and they, we can expect that there will be a trial, but it's not entirely clear what to make of this. More direct evidence. Immediately after the agreement, a, a company called CrowdStrike said that there was no reduction in Chinese intrusion sets, but we figured that that was a little too early to tell because this is a large enterprise that takes a long time to turn around. Reports since then do suggest that there's, if not necessarily complete elimination, then there has been a serious reduction in Chinese economically motivated cyber espionage. Kaspersky claims that all the hackers went out and started picking on Russia. Admiral Rogers has conceded there has been, in fact, some reduction. Other cybersecurity firm, Fidelis, basically 
echoed that. And FireEye actually made the most bold claim that said, look, we've been tracking 22 Chinese actors, and we're not really seeing them in the United States, or at least against the United States companies anymore. So we have to conclude that there, the evidence suggests that China is, in fact, conducting a lot less economically motivated cyber espionage, and we cannot rule out the proposition that they intend to cut it out altogether. Okay? But I want to <coughs> touch on the nature of power here and the nature of the norms. Our first hypothesis was that, in fact, China woke up and decided, hey, spying on other people's industry is probably not a good idea. We really don't think this is particularly plausible. We weren't getting that from our Chinese interviewees. And that's a really sharp turning on a dime. I think a lot of the explanation has to do with the way the deterrence and the way persuasion is understood in the two societies. The United States is a believer in the rule of law. Okay, not a 100% believer because we're all human, but basically believes that a world that is run according to norms and where people are responsible to norms is going to be a more peaceful world. One of the elements of norms is that the laws apply equally, that the rules for one are necessarily the rules for all, and that in the court, and I use this rather liberally, that judges these matters, um, countries are peers. They are nominally equal before the law. And so the United States focuses on things such as the violation of rules and things such as who violated the rules, okay? And in U.S. strategic thinking, deterrence is something that one has. It's a state in which people don't violate the rules and life can proceed without uh, the sort of confrontations that take place when people do follow the rules. Our observation of China was not the same. That Chinese, the, the structure of, of Chinese society, the events of Chinese history, particularly over the last 200 years, have persuaded China that, in fact, power is necessary in order to have a world structure. And that countries do not enjoy equal levels of power. Okay, there's a quote from the Chinese Foreign Ministry discussing Southeast Asia. China is a big country, other countries are small countries, and that's a fact. A lot of what we were hearing from our Chinese interviewers about the nature of respect and sovereignty was not a plea that the United States treat all countries equally. It was a request, although I don't, I'm not certain request is exactly the right word, that in fact China be understood as a peer to the United States. It's contained in the phrase, a new great power relationship. But we also saw evidence, that the little evidence, that China, in fact, sought a peer relationship with those countries which it judged to be less powerful than China, okay? In other words, not all countries are peers. And if you're going to have norms or you're going to have bodies of behavior, it's not because things have been written down and agreed to. It's because that there is enough power in the world to keep people consistent with that, okay? And so the Chinese perceptions of deterrence focus a lot on the power to get people to do necessarily things that they have to do, okay? And that deterrence is not something necessarily that one has, but it's also something that one does to remind people about what the power hierarchy is. And in that context, I think we can understand at least to my mind, a little better about what happened, okay? In theory, the United States proposed was a reasonable norm and pressed China to adopt it. 
But I rather doubt that China sort of assessed the quality and logic of our argument and said, you know, I think the Americans, I think the Americans are right on this. I think it's more likely that the Chinese took a look at what they were getting from economically motivated cyber espionage, came to the conclusion that they weren't getting as much as people thought, maybe not as much as they used to. They realized that carrying out economically motivated cyber espionage was generating very large risks in their relations with the United States. It further concluded that it was not in a position to win a confrontation on that issue for a number of reasons. At that point, China's economy looked a little wobbly. China is more dependent on exports to the United States, and the United States is, depends on exports to China. And that there were other issues which the Chinese felt were more important to China than they were to the United States, whereas economically motivated cyber espionage looked like one of those issues that was more important to the United States than it was to China. So then we'll just wrap up by saying, so what are some of the takeaways from this study potentially for policymakers and lawmakers who are reading this and trying to think through this issue? I think the first is, as you saw in September 2015, and I think as you could argue in 2013 when the U.S. first planned to raise this issue at the Sunnyland Summit, this issue can, we can make progress on this issue as long as the U.S. administration of the day raises it to the level of very senior leadership, most notably the president, making a communication to his or her in the future Chinese counterpart. That means that this can't be a one-off. This can't be something that the U.S. says, well, you know what, President Obama got that deal in September 2015, and that's done, and that's settled territory. We can relax. Instead, we have to condition progress in the broader U.S.-China relationship or the state of the U.S.-China relationship on China's continued follow-through on this agreement. Second, we have previously laid down criminal sanctions. The Justice Department indicted the five PLA officers who were found to be involved in economically motivated cyber espionage. We have to continue to follow through with that, and if additional evidence is brought before the uh, prosecutors that says this is proof that these individuals were engaged in hacking these private sector actors, there needs to be follow through on that too. In other words, don't wave it off because we've got an agreement, now we don't indict anyone else if we find them, you indict if you find the evidence. Finally, Chinese firms, as we've talked about, are widely believed to have benefited from very substantial theft of intellectual property. Chinese firms would oftentimes like to sell their products in U.S. markets or raise capital on U.S. capital markets. Any Chinese firms that are found to possess stolen U.S. intellectual property should not be allowed to raise money or sell their products in U.S. markets. With that, I'd like to thank you for coming. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.